Welcome to Spore Module, the official RoboFungus podcast. My name is Zach Leach, and I'll be your host today. Today's episode, episode 5, Story Time, The Brown Owl by H. Ford Hifar, Part 1. Once upon a time, a long while ago, in fact, before Egypt had risen to power and before Rome and Greece had ever been heard of, and that was some time before you were born, you know, there was a king who reigned over a very large and powerful kingdom. Now this king was rather old, he had founded his kingdom himself, and he had reigned over it 999 and a half years already. As I have said before, it was a very large kingdom, for it contained, among other things, the whole of the western half of the world. The rest of the world was divided into smaller kingdoms, and each kingdom was ruled over by separate princes, who, however, were none of them so old as Interfernes, as he was called. Now, King Interfernes was an exceedingly powerful magician. That was why he had remained so long on the throne. For you must know that in this country the people were divided into two classes, those who were magicians and those who weren't. The magicians called themselves aristocrats, and the others called themselves what they liked. Also in this country, as in all other countries, the rich magicians had the upper hand over the rest. But still the others did not grumble, for they were not badly treated in the whole. Now, of all the magicians in the country, the king was the greatest, and no one approached him in magic power but the chancellor, who was called Mary Mineral, and he even was no match for the king. Among other things, King Interfernes had a daughter, who was exceedingly beautiful, as indeed all princesses are or ought to be. She had a very fair face, a wealth of golden hair that fell over her shoulders like shining waterfall falling in ripples to her waist. Now in the thousandth year of her father's reign, the princess was eighteen, and in that country she was already of age. Three days before her nineteenth birthday, however, her father fell sick and gradually weakened until at last he had only the strength left to lie in his royal bed. Still, however, he retained his faculties, and on the princess's birthday he made all the magicians file before his bed and swear to be faithful forever to the princess. Last of all came the chancellor, the pious Mary Mineral, and as he took the oath the king looked at him with a loving glance and said, Ah, my dear Mary Mineral, in truth there was no need for thee to have taken the oath. For it is thy nature to be faithful, and it being thy nature thou couldst not be but faithful. To which the pious Mary Mineral answered, To such a master and to such a mistress, how could I be but faithful? And to this noble sentiment the three hundred and forty-seven magicians could not help according unanimous applause. When they were quiet again, the king said, So be it, good Mary Mineral. Do thou always act up to thy words. But now leave, good men and all, for I am near my end, and would fain spend my last moments with my daughter here. Sorrowfully, one by one, the couriers left, wishing him their last adieu. He had been a good king to all, all through his long reign, and they were sorry that he had to leave them at last. Soon they were all gone except the good Mary Mineral, and at last he too went, his whole frame shaking with suppressed sobs, his body seemed powerless with grief, and his limbs seemed to refuse their functions. The king looked after him, carefully noticing whether the door was shut. Then he spoke. My dear daughter, he said, when I am gone, be kind to everyone, 
and above all, cherish the owl. Do cherish the owl. Promise me to cherish the owl. But how can I cherish the owl? cried the poor princess. How can I, unless I know who he is? But the king only answered, Dear Ismara, do promise to cherish the owl. And he said nothing else for a long time, until at last the princess saw that the only way to let him rest in peace was to promise. And she said, I promise, dear father, but still I do wish I knew who or what the owl is that I am to cherish. You will see that in good time, answered the king. Now, my dear Ismara, I shall die happy, and you will be safe. If you had not promised, however, we will let that rest unsaid. Now wheel the bed to where I can see out of the window. The princess did as she was told. Now, from this you must not imagine that she was a very strong princess, for she was no stronger than most princesses of her age. But the old king, who is a very powerful magician, as I have told you already, made the bed easy for her to move. He might have made it move of his own accord, but he knew that it would please his daughter to be of service to him, and so he let her move it. The view from the window was very fine. A dark wood grew in the foreground, and far away, over the treetops, were the blue hills, behind which the sun was just preparing to retire. And it seemed angry, the sun, for its face was dark and clouded, and its beams smote fiercely on everything, and gilded the tops of the autumn trees with a purer gold than their natural tint. But overhead the clouds spread darkly, and they reached into a black pall to the verge of the horizon, forming a black frame to the red-gold sunset, for only the extreme west was bright with the waning light. The princess sat on the bed beside the king, and the dying sun lit them both and fell with a ruddy glare on the king's hard countenance, as if it knew that his work on earth for the last day and forever was done. "'Is it not grand?' cried the old king, as if the glorious sight warmed his blood again and made him once more young. And is it not grand to think of the power that thou hast, my daughter? If thou but raise thy little finger, armies will move from the world's end to the world's end. Fleets come daily from every land for thee alone, and all that thou seest is thine, and utterly within thy power. Think of the power, the grand power, of swaying the world. But long before he had got thus far, the princess was weeping bitterly, partly at the overwhelming prospect and partly from her great grief. She seized her father's hand and kissed it passionately. My father, my father, she cried, say not so. They are all thine, not mine. For thou livest still, and all is yet well. But the old king cut her short. Dost thou see the sun? Look, its lower rim is already cut by the mountains. When its disk is hidden, I too shall have joined the majority, and my soul will have left my body, and the power will be thine. But above all, cherish the owl. Never go out of its sight, for if thou do, some harm will happen. As he stopped speaking, a flash of lightning lit up the sky, and a sullen roar of distant thunder followed. From every church in the land, the passing bell tolled forth, and the solemn sounds came swelling on the breeze. 
Again came the flash of lightning, again the thunder, and now the splash of falling rain accompanied and almost drowned the thunder. The sun's rim was almost down. For the last time the old king kissed his daughter, and as she hung weeping about his neck, again the lightning came. But this time the thunder was drowned in a more fearful sound. Never before had the sound been heard, except at the death of the princess's mother. It was the passing bell of the cathedral of the town, and as its sound went forth throughout the whole land, men shook their heads in sorrow, for they knew that the soul of the good king had left his body. Through the whole land the news was known, to every one except the princess. For she lay on the bed, passionately kissing the dead face, not yet cold in death, and calling on his name in vain, for the ears of the dead are closed to the voice of the charmer, charm he never so wisely. Gradually the voice of the princess died away into low sobs, and her breathing came more regularly, and in spite of the tolling of the death bell she slept, worn out by her grief. No one came near her, for at the court no one was allowed to enter the royal presence without a command, whatever happened. So for a time the princess slept on, clasping the still face to her warm cheek. But at last the death cold of the face wakened her once more, to the death cold of the world. For a time her waking dreams refused to let her believe the worst, but the stern reality forced itself on her. She raised herself on her two arms and gazed through the darkness at the white face that made her shudder when her longing eyes last traced out its lines as a flash of lightning lit it up. She sprang off the bed with a wild impulse of calling for help. But no sooner had she got to the door and had given call than she once more fainted and seemed for a time lifeless. When she came to herself again, she was in bed in her own room. It was still night and at the side of her bed a nightlight was burning in a glass shade. She could not understand what it all meant, but her head did ache so, and she could not tell why they were making such a noise at the far end of the room. For you see, she was lying down on her back, low down in the pillows, and so she could not see beyond the foot of the bed. However, she raised herself on her elbow and looked. For a short time she could see nothing, for the room was somewhat dark, as the night light gave but little light. But at the other end of the room a large fire was burning, and by its light the princess saw a strange scene. For in the middle of the floor she could make out a group of three ladies-in-waiting, who were backed with a large black object. What it was the princess could not see, but it seemed to be attempting to attack the court doctor, who was huddled up in a corner with his umbrella spread out before him, and he was gradually sinking down behind it, giving vent to the most horrible groans and shrieks for mercy, and calling to the ladies to keep it off. However, in spite of their efforts, the thing was gradually drawing them nearer and nearer to the poor doctor. But the strangest thing of all was the doctor's face was lit up by two distinct rounds of light. It was just as if someone had turned the light of a bullseye lantern on him, and this the princess could not understand at all. However, she lay still and watched. The doctor got farther and farther behind the umbrella, until only his head appeared over the top of it. At last he shrieked, "'Send for the regiment of lifeguards!' Let them shoot the owl. It is necessary for the health of the princess. Owls are very bad things to have in bedrooms. They bring scarlatina, and they always carry the influenza epidemic. 
Lifeguards, I tell you, send for them. But still the thing came nearer, and with an agonized shriek of, The owl! he sank altogether under the rim. This cry of the owl roused the princess, and she remembered her promise to cherish the owl. So she called to the ladies-in-waiting, and they, astonished, let go of the thing, and the owl immediately flew at the umbrella, underneath which the doctor was coiled up and perched on the top. The princess, however, thought it was rather rash to have promised to cherish the owl if it was going to eat up her physicians in that reckless manner. However, the owl did not seem aggressive. It only seemed as if it were waiting for further orders. The princess determined to see if it would come when it was called, like a dog. So she called in a sweet, pervasive voice, Come here, good owl. Immediately the dark shape of the owl flitted noiselessly to her side as she sat on the bed. The wind of its flight blew out the flickering nightlight in spite of the glass shade, but the glittering eyes of the owl lit up the whole room, so that there was no need of light. As it alighted on the bed, it turned its eyes on the princess as much to say, What shall I do now? But the fierce light of the eyes was softened as it turned to her, as if the owl feared to hurt her with the blinding rays. Cherished howl, the princess, why didst thou hurt the physician? The owl shook his head, but the princess could not understand whether he meant he did not know why he had hurt him, or if he meant he had not hurt him. So the princess told one of the ladies-in-waiting to remove the umbrella from over the doctor. But this was not so easy as it sounded, for the doctor held firmly onto the handle, and in spite of the united efforts of the three ladies-in-waiting, he managed to hold on. At last the princess lost patience. Go and help them, good owl, she said, and the owl, overjoyed, flew to the doctor, and seizing the top of the umbrella, flew with it up to the ceiling, and as the doctor still held on, he flew round and round until the doctor, hitting the top of a cupboard, let go and fell in a heap in the middle of the floor, where he lay half unconscious, repeating as he sat, Orange juice for influenza. Try a seedlitz powder and a blue pill, and keep the owls out of the room, and take warmer bath, and send for the lifeguards. But the princess did not seem inclined to send for them, and in truth it would have been rather awkward for the horses to get in, as the room was on the second floor. So the princess told the ladies-in-waiting to drag him out of the room, and they obeyed. But as he went, he said, Sleeping in unaired sheets causes rheumatism, sciatica, pleurisy, pneumonia, and owls. And as the door closed, they heard him say, Gregory, powder, and Epsom salts. The poor princess, however, began to weep again, and the owl sat perched on the bedpost at her feet, watching her with its bright eyes. However, after she had cried thus for a long time, she thought it would be better to stop her tears, for they were all in vain as she knew but too well. So she rose from her bed, for you must know she had only been laid on her bed when she had fainted, and so she still had all her clothes on. Through the window blinds the light of dawn was already beginning to show itself, so the princess went to the window and drew back the curtains and let the bright sunlight shine into the room. A beautiful day was dawning after the last night's rain, and the sun was rising brightly over the edge of the blue sea. For a moment, as she looked out, everything was quiet, except the shrill chirp of a solitary sparrow that seemed to have awakened too early. From the chimneys of the red-roofed town below her, no smoke was rising, for all the town were asleep still. Suddenly, with a rush, the morning breeze came over from the land behind her, and with the rustle of the wind everything seemed to wake and come to life once more. The solitary chirp of the sparrow was drowned in the flood of song that poured forth from the trees in the palace garden, and with the birds the rest of the living animals awoke and from far inland the lowing of cows was borne on the breeze. 
and now and again came the joyful bark of the shepherd's dog as it recognized its master's whistle as he called it to work again among the sheep, whose plaintive bleeding came softly as if from a distance to the princess's ear. Everything seemed joyful at the sight of the beautiful morning except the princess, and she felt oh so lonely, for it seemed as if her only friend had gone from her forever. And at the thought her tears began to flow afresh, for she felt very lonely, while everything else seemed to rejoice. But as she leant thus against the window sill, with a great lump in her throat and the hot tears in her eyes, she suddenly felt a weight on her shoulder, and a rushing wind waved her hair, and as she turned her head to see what it was, her face was covered in the soft brown feathers of the owl, who had perched on her shoulder. The touch of the owl seemed to have driven away her grief, and she felt quite light and joyful in the beautiful sunshine, for it seemed as if the owl had become a companion to her that would take the place of her father. So she leaned her head against the owl, and her golden hair mixed with the dusky brown feathers till each streak of golden hair shone again in the bright sunlight, and the owl too seemed very happy. So for a time the princess stood looking over the deep blue sea. Suddenly, however, a footstep sounded in the courtyard below, and the princess drew back from the window, for a thought suddenly came into her head. Oh dear, she said, I have been crying such a lot that my eyes must be quite red, and my hair is all ruffled. This will never do. And as she looked in the glass, she said, Ah, just as I thought. Come, my cherished owl, sit there on the crown on top of the looking-glass frame and wait while I wash my hands and face and make myself tidy. The owl did as he was told, and the princess began to wash in cold water, a thing she had never done before. But as she did not like to call to her ladies-in-waiting, lest they should see how red her eyes were, so she had to put up with the cold water. And very pleasant she found it, for it cleared the tear mist out of her eyes and made her feel quite happy and cheerful again. And I have heard, she thought to herself, that washing in cold water is matchless for the complexion. When she had finished washing, she went and combed her hair before the glass, for she was a very artistic princess, and liked looking at beautiful things, and so she liked sometimes to look at herself in the glass. Not that she was in the least conceited. So she combed her hair with a gold comb, and when she had finished combing it, she put on her gold circlet as a sign of her rank. And then she said to the owl, who had been sitting patiently on the looking-glass, blinking at her, as if he quite enjoyed himself. Now, cherished owl, you may sit on my shoulder again. When the owl was again in his place, he blinked at the glass, at his own reflection, as if the light were too strong for him, and he shut his eyes and drew in his neck, and lifted up one foot into his feathers, as if he felt quite happy and comfortable. And the princess smiled at his happy look, for she seemed quite to have forgotten her sorrow in the company of the owl. So she, with the owl on her shoulder, went to the window. Here, in the courtyard, already a large crowd had collected to catch a glimpse of the princess if possible. So she, with the owl on her shoulder, went to the window. Here in the courtyard, already a large crowd had collected to catch a glimpse of the princess if possible, so that it fell about when they saw her, and they raised a mighty shout of joy and pity. The, the king, king is, is dead, dead, they cried. Long live the queen! And throughout the city, far and wide, echoed and re-echoed the cry. Long live the queen! And it seemed as if the waves of the sea murmured in the sound. The princess, however, held out her hand to still the tumult, as if by magic the cries stopped. Good people all, she said in clear ringing tones, I thank you for your good wishes, and I will try always to be worthy of them, as my father was. For today, however, rejoice not. Remember that the great king Interferness, the founder of the kingdom to which we all belong, has but just left the earth. Sorrow for him, but a short time. Joy will come soon enough for all. So the crowd, 
silent and pensive for a time, dispersed in groups. More than one of them asked what had been perched on the princess's shoulder, and those who had been near enough said that it was an owl, though what it meant they knew not. To me it seemed as if the head of the old king were looking over his daughter's shoulder, said one of the listeners who stood on the outskirts of the crowd. But she was only a little hunchback, and the rich citizens laughed at her, saying, Tosh, child, thy fancy is not sound, or else before looking at the princess thou didst look at the fierce sun, and sunspots in thy eye caused thee to see it thus. It was but an owl. But the little hunchback held to her own opinion. But while the princess stood watching them depart, a tapping came at the door, and the princess cried, Come in! A page entered, and said that the Chancellor, Mary Mineral, was below and requested audience of the princess. Let him be shown into the audience chamber to await me there. The page bowed and departed on his errand, and the princess went to another door in the room and went down the staircase that led from it to the audience chamber, and the owl remained seated on her shoulder until they reached the room. When they got there, the Chancellor had not yet entered, for the staircase from the princess's bedroom to the audience chamber was much shorter than that from the entrance hall, and then you see the princess was much more nimble than Mary Mineral, who was an old man, and she ran quickly downstairs whilst he walked up slowly. However, at last he entered, and as he came in, the princess said, Good morning, dear Mary Mineral. How is it you are so late? I shall have to fine you if you keep me waiting like this again. Now, what do you want with me? The good chancellor received her laughing reproach as his head bowed deep down. He heaved a deep sigh and drew his pocket handkerchief from his pocket and applied it to his eyes. As he drew it away, the tears could be seen flowing fast down his withered cheeks. I came, he moaned to console you for your great loss. I, too, he continued in a voice choked with sobs, I, too, am an orphan. It seemed funny to the princess to see him weeping thus, and could hardly help laughing at him, but her grief soon came back. Poor Mary Mineral, she sighed. To you also it must be a sad blow, for you are always faithful and attached, but it must be fated to happen thus, and you must really try and be comforted, for crying will not mend matters. The Chancellor began again. The beloved king, your father. But his sobs choked him, and he hid his face. The beloved king, your father. Echoed a loud voice, exactly mimicking the tones of the Chancellor. But where the voice was coming from, no one could tell. The Chancellor started. Did you say that? Said the Princess. Not the second time, answered Mary Mineral. Who could it be? Said the Princess. For there was no one in the room except the cherished owl. And you can't speak. Can you, Owl, dear? The Owl shook his head dismally, but the change that came over Mary Mineral was most astounding, as his eye suddenly lit upon the Owl, for since his entrance he had not raised his eyes from the floor. He jumped backwards over three rows of seats, for the seats in the audience chamber were arranged in rows, and he alighted in a sitting posture on the other side. As he sat on the floor, he looked up at the Owl in a terrified manner, and then threw up his arms and fainted. The poor princess did not know what to do. So she rang a bell that stood on the table in front of the throne. Several pages at once came in. Just bring that man too, said the princess. The pages bowed low and went and shook the chancellor violently. He showed no signs of recovering. So one of the pages turned to the princess and said, May it please your majesty, but the chancellor refuses to come too, and we can't bring him. So he refuses to obey my orders, said the princess. He must be punished for this. However, go and get a bucket full of water and pour it on him. Perhaps that will bring him too. Now when she said he was to be punished, she was only joking, but she said it very gravely, so that many people might have thought it was quite in earnest. 
Meanwhile, the pages departed to fetch the water. They soon came back and brought a large pailful. You had better not throw it all over him, said the princess. Just let it trickle over his face gently. So one of the pages began to do as he was told, but somehow either he had a sudden push or, as he said afterwards, the owl looked at him and startled him. He let the pail go, and all the water and the pail too fell over the unlucky chancellor. This really did bring him very much too, much too much too, in fact, for he sprang up in such a rage that the princess really wished herself out of the room. You jackanapes, he screamed at the unfortunate page. You ape, you boar. You cow, you clumsy monkey, I'll be revenged on you. But the princess, who had gained courage while she was screaming, said, You will not be revenged on him. But I shall. Indeed you will not, said the princess, for he did it by my orders. Oh, he did it by your orders, said the chancellor. Then I'll be revenged on you too. And he began to move uncomfortably near to the princess. But the three pages threw themselves on him and tried to drag him back. But he turned suddenly on them. What? He said scornfully. You try to stop me, ye frogs? Ah, a good idea. By virtue of my magic power, I command you to turn into water rats. Then perhaps the owl there will eat you up. No sooner said than done, the three pages instantly became water rats, squatting in the water that was still in a pool on the floor. Somehow the princess did not seem to be at all frightened by this. She was only very angry. I thought I told you not to hurt those pages. Who cares what you say? Dear me, thought the princess. He is getting excessively insolent. I shall have to be more severe with him in a moment. So she said, Turn those pages back again. I shall not. Then leave the room. I shall not. The princess did not know what to do. He was really very rude, and he was walking towards her, evidently intending to attack her. When he was within ten feet of her, he stopped, and though he tried to get nearer, he could not. Ha ha! he cried. You think to keep me off by magic, but it is not so easy. I can tell you, by virtue of my magic power, I command you to turn into a mouse. But the princess, leaning her head against the soft feathers of the owl, only smiled and did not turn into a mouse at all. The Chancellor seemed perplexed. Is that not enough for you? He said. I thought I told you to turn into a mouse. But the princess smiled calmly and said, Do you suppose I am going to have to do anything of the sort? You have forgotten your manners to speak to your queen thus. I believe there is a fine of five shillings for anyone who speaks to the king or queen without saying your majesty. You had better pay it, Sir Chancellor, and turn those pages back again, or I shall have you turned out of the kingdom. But the Chancellor laughed. You can't send me out if you want to. But meanwhile, I shall not turn those rats back, for if I am not much mistaken, your owl there will carry them off. It really seemed as if the owl were going to obey him, for greatly to the princess's surprise it sprang off her shoulder and seized the three rats, one in each claw and one in its beak. But it returned at once to her and laid them squeaking on the table in front of her. But no sooner did they touch the table than they turned into men again just as quickly as they had become rats. When Mary Mineral saw this, he became perfectly frantic, and he tried in vain to get at the princess. He even went back a little and tried to run at her, but it was no use, for no sooner did he reach a certain spot than he was suddenly stopped, just as if he had run against a wall. At last he became so frantic that the princess could stand it no longer, so she said, Will you be quiet, you naughty old man? Leave the room, or I will send for the police. But Mary Mineral answered, Oh, send for the police and the soldiers and sailors and candlestick makers. So the princess rang the bell that stood on the table. A page at once appeared in the door. Send for a policeman and ask him to step this way. 
the page look astonished, but he saluted and left the room. Almost immediately a policeman came in, for you see there was one always in the palace steps. He entered the room with a low bow. Take the Chancellor out of the room, said the princess, and put him in prison for three days. But the policeman shook his head. Uh, ex excuse me, mum. I mean, your most gracious majesty, but it is against the law to imprison a member of parliament, m much less a chancellor. The chancellor laughed sarcastically. Oh, is it? said the princess. Never mind. Take him into custody. I depose him. He is no longer chancellor. Mary Mineral looked astonished, but the policeman cleared his throat and said, Come, I say, young fellow, will you go quietly or shall I make you? Oh, make me by all means, answered Mary Mineral. So the policeman advanced and held out his hand to take him by the collar, and had no sooner touched Mary Mineral than he fell to the ground as if he had been thunderstruck. The Chancellor smiled. I told you so, he said. The Princess was now thoroughly nonplussed. However, she rang the bell again. Again the page appeared. Summon the Lords of the Council and let them come here at once. Almost immediately afterwards the Lords appeared. As they came in, each one bowed profoundly to the Princess, but in spite of their grave appearance, they could not help looking astonished at the policeman who was lying on the floor and at the three pages who were still sitting on the table for as they had not yet been told to go they could not depart but each one took his seat without questioning last of all came in the court doctor who looked in an alarmed manner at the owl nevertheless he took his seat when all was quiet the princess began to speak my lords she said i have been obliged to assemble you on the first day of my reign but the matter is a very grave one I have found it necessary to dismiss the Chancellor for these reasons. First, he attacked these three pages, who were executing my bidding. Next, he attacked me. And lastly, he attacked the law in the person of the policeman there, whom he knocked down. Now I ask your advice as to how I am to get rid of him, for he refuses to leave the room at my command. So spoke the Princess, but before anyone could answer, Mary Minerals spoke. My lords, he said, are we... We, the lords of the kingdom, to be governed by this schoolgirl, who is not even a magician as we are. What good has she ever done us? What power is to keep us from deposing her and electing as ruler one of ourselves? But before he could finish, a perfect uproar of shouts and rage interrupted him. The princess put her fingers in her ears to keep out the sound, and when the lords saw that the noise was annoying her, they stopped at once. When they were quiet, the princess spoke again. What he has just said is right, she said. I have no right to reign over you, for I am but a girl. Do ye therefore elect a ruler? For a moment all was silence in the council, but all eyes were turned to a lord who stood next to Mary Mineral in rank. He was a portly man, and a great magician too, though his power was not quite so great as Mary Mineral's. When therefore he saw that all eyes were turned on him, Lord Lesec, for he was so called, rose. Your most gracious majesty, he began. Although you had no need to command us to elect a ruler, we are, of course, bound to obey your commands. Whatever they are, I therefore speak, giving my vote, and I believe the vote of all the rest of the assembly, that you shall be our ruler, according to the oath which we swear to your father. And turning to the rest of the assembly, he said, Am I not right, my lords? And with one voice they answered, We will die, for our queen is Mara. Only one voice objected, but as that was Mary Mineral, no one noticed him. So the princess rose and thanked them for their confidence in her. Though, to tell the truth, she had known all along what they would say. That done, she said, And now what are we to do about turning this man out? For he refuses to go of his own accord. 
No one could suggest anything better than to send for the lifeguards and let them carry him off. But before this was done, they decided to try and persuade him to go. But it was of no use, for he stood on the spot where he had stopped, with his arms folded and his hat on, looking down at the ground in a brown study, and he took no notice of anything they could do, even though they rang a bell close to his ear. Now he stood no particular harm as he stood there, but you see no one could tell whom he might attack next, so they determined to send for the lifeguards as a last resource. So they were sent for, and in a short time they came, although they left their horses outside in the courtyard. Fifty of them were then marched into the hall, and they were ordered to move the man out. So they divided into two parties of twenty-five each, and they put a rope around him. And each body of twenty-five took an end of the rope and pulled, but it was no good, for he took no more notice of the pulling than if he had been Samson or any other strong man. So the fifty gave up the attempt in despair. The only thing to do seemed to be to cut him to pieces, so they drew their swords and hacked at him but it was no use. The swords bent or broke just as if they had been bulrushes or paper, and still Mary Mineral took no notice in particular. So they gave up the attempt in despair when they had broken all their swords. However, they did not give in, for they called the best horseman in the regiment and told him to charge on horseback with his lance in rest. So the soldier rode in on his horse. This was not so difficult as it may seem, for the council chamber was on a level with the ground, and a lane was open between the chairs to where Mary Mineral still stood with his arms folded. At the word of command, the soldier rode at full speed towards Mary Mineral, aiming his lance at the center of his face, that is, his nose. His aim was true, and the lance hit fair, but it might just as well have been made of macaroni, for it crumbled just as a stick of that delightful edible will do if you ran it against a wall. The horse, however, swerved just in time, although it pushed against him in going by, but even this made no difference to Mary Mineral. As a last resort, they suggested putting a lighted match under his nose. Whether this would have succeeded or not, I can't say, but just at this moment, Mary Mineral seemed to wake up again. Ah, uh, he said, I see you have not managed to get me out of the room. However, as your soldiers have been practicing on me for some time past, I think it only right that I should try my hand on them a little. I used to be thought rather strong in the arms at one time, and I have cut down a good many trees in my time. Just see how you like that, he said to the man on the horse as he swung his umbrella round his head and brought it down with a tremendous thwack on the horse's side. In fact, he hit so hard that the horse and man were knocked right through the window into the courtyard below. With three more blows, he knocked twenty more of the men through the same window, and the rest made their escape as fast as they could by door. I see I have not quite forgotten how to clear a room yet, he said as he once more folded his arms in the same attitude and relapsed into silence. What am I to do? said the poor princess, wringing her hands and almost crying with vexation. A voice came from the far end of the room, and everyone turned to see who it might be, and all saw it was the court physician who spoke. If, if I might be allowed to make a suggestion, he said, I would say the best thing your majesty could do would be to request that gentleman who is sitting on your shoulder to turn him out. From my own experience, I should say he was very competent to perform such a task, and if I might be allowed to add yet another suggestion, it would be to be well shaken before taken, as they say in prescriptions. As he said this, an extraordinary change came over Mary Mineral. He pressed his hat on his head, put his umbrella under his arm, and began to put it on his gloves in such a hurry that he mistook the left for the right hand. As he did so, he said, Do you know I can't stop any longer? So sorry, but I have an engagement, and I am rather in a hurry. Good day. And he began to walk quickly towards the door, but the princess had already whispered to the owl, Catch him, dear owl. And however fast he went, the owl caught him up, and taking him by the middle of his coattails, and I am bound to say some of his skin too, he shook him violently, 
and flew round and round the room, banging him violently against any high piece of furniture that was convenient. Oh! shrieked the wretched man. I say, do you know you're tearing my best coat, and your beak is awfully sharp? Ouch! And he filled the room with his shrieks. After they had continued like that for some minutes, the princess said, I think he has been punished enough now, cherished owl, so let him down. The owl did as he was told. Not, however without giving him a slight tweak with his bill that must have hurt him a good deal. I'll be revenged on you, roared Mary Mineral. You've spoiled my Sunday coat, and I shan't be able to afford another, for I don't know how long I'll be revenged on you. And he took out a red pocket handkerchief, and he began to swage the blood that was coming from the bite, all while abusing the owl and the princess and threatening to be revenged. You had better be quiet and go, she said. I shall not. Oh, very well, she answered. Perhaps you would like to try the owl again. At the same time, the owl gave him such a look from its gleaming eyes that he turned first red and then white with fright. He made a dash for the window, and he was in such a hurry that he left his umbrella and one of his gloves behind. He jumped right through the window, high into the air, and as soon as he got outside, strange to say, he began to burn furiously, and he went gradually up into the sky like a fire balloon. Just as when a piece of tissue paper is put on the fire, if you are not careful, it'll fly blazing up the chimney. They watched him out of sight, and then the princess said with a little sigh of relief, That's an end of him at last. But the owl shook his head. He knew better. When he was thus at last got rid of, the princess said to the physician, How can we ever thank thee enough, good doctor, for thy timely suggestion? Oh, your majesty, said the blushing doctor. Experience does it, and I had plenty of that this morning. But you know, I think I shall never be free again from pain, although I have bathed in Opodeldoc and Arnica, and I am clothed from head to foot in court plaster, the princess smiled and said. I am afraid the owl is a little over-vigorous in such manners. However, I will give orders to the court apothecary to supply you with remedies at my expense until you shall be cured. She then said to the three pages who still sat on the table, I must ask you to depart now, as Parliament cannot carry on business with strangers in the house. However, ye are, I believe, pages. I will turn over a new leaf, and will advance you each a step in rank. Now, however, go. Thanking her profusely, they went. When they had gone, the princess turned to the counsellors and said, As there seems to be no further need to keep you, I will detain you no longer. Having her permission... The counsellors left the hall. Last of all was Lord Lesec, and he remained as if hesitating whether to go or to stay and speak to the princess. She, noticing his hesitation, said, Ah, Lord Lesec, hast thou something to ask me? The old lord made to answer, I would ask your majesty's permission to enter the room of the late king, your majesty's father, for, as you are aware, it is against the law to enter the royal presence without the royal permission. You have my permission, of course, but ought not some preparations be made for the funeral? Lord Lysick answered, They are already made, for as the late king had announced his intention of dying yesterday at half-past six p.m., there was ample time. Then let us go together to the room, my lord, said the princess. So they went together, the princess leaning on Lysick's arm and the owl sitting on her shoulder. This has been part one of The Brown Owl by H. Ford Hifar, published 1892. Tune in next week for the next part here at Spore Module, the official Robofungus podcast. 